Welcome back to the All Roads Lead to Amber podcast. We're now up to book five, The Courts of Chaos. The Courts of Chaos was published in 1978. F. Brett Cox says about the book, quote, The Courts of Chaos largely turns away from family schemes and battlefields to linger on the deep strangeness and, on occasion, fundamental absurdity of Corwin's shadow journey before racing to an ending that provides closure but leaves the door open to further adventures, end quote. And that's right, this book is unique among the five for a couple of things. One, it's almost entirely Corwin's journey through Shadow. Uh, you've got some opening chapters that set up kind of his mission to bring the jewel to the Courts of Chaos, and then you have some really great scenes at the end, the conclusion, the killing of Bran, the winning of the war, the revelation that all of this has been a story told to Merlin, the breakup with Dara. And in between, you have one long, crazy hell ride through Shadow. Wikipedia sums up the plot of the book like this, quote, Corwin must ride the entire length of the multiverse, from Amber to the Courts of Chaos, while Oberon attempts to repair the pattern. All the while, Bran pursues him, trying to steal the Jewel of Judgment, end quote. And it's a pretty introspective book, you know, if you thought there was a lot of the dot, 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 shadow-walking, descriptive narrative up until now, it's pretty much mostly what you get in this entire book. There's also some really interesting philosophy and psychology. And in terms of mythology, Zelazny kind of sets aside the Arthurian legends, then dabbles in a bit of Norse mythology here. It's an awesome book, and there's some incredible scenes, but you are kind of wanting everything to wrap up. And it's interesting, you know, according to an interview with the biographer Kovacs, quote, Zelazny conceived of a series of books, initially a trilogy from the start. Then he got tired of it and wrote The Courts of Chaos to get out of a contract with Doubleday, end quote. Doubleday's the publisher there. And that's pretty fascinating. That's something Kovacs said in an interview after Zelazny had died. And it is backed up by F. Brett Cox, who said, quote, Bowing to pressure from his publisher and his fans, Zelazny set aside roadmarks in order to finish The Courts of Chaos. By 1979, when the science fiction book club republished all five novels into a two-volume omnibus called The Chronicles of Amber, Zelazny was perhaps as well known for the Amber series as he was for the novels and short fiction of the 1960s, end quote. It's interesting, as Zelazny is wrapping up the Amber series here in 1978. He's about two years from incorporating himself as the Amber Corporation. Cox says, quote, self-incorporation was not unusual for a successful writer. His choice of corporate names signals his awareness of the main source of that success, end quote. Cox also says, quote, if Zelazny began his career as a full-time writer terrified he would not be prolific enough to make a living, by the end of his first full decade of self-employment, it was clear he need not have worried, end quote. That's what we're coming to, right? We're coming to the end of the 70s, 1978 here. It's 10 years after the 1968 Hugo Award for Lord of Light, by the way, widely considered to be his masterpiece. You know, Cox says that by 77, quote, the narrative of Zelazny's decline was firmly in place, commenting on to die in Italbar. Forgive me if I'm butchering that pronunciation. The SF novelist writing as Richard Cowper declared the novel 
wholly unworthy of the author of Arose for Ecclesiastes, the early promise remains unfulfilled, end quote. And so, again, coming back to what I had talked about at the beginning of this podcast series, you have this probably unfair narrative of Zelazny evolving in the 1970s, going from kind of like his early smash hits of the 60s, but then transitioning to be a full-time writer. And it's interesting, right? Remember that he's still supporting himself with kind of a boring desk job in the 60s, transitions to a dedicated writing career, starts becoming quite popular because of the Amber novels, which are, you know, clearly paying the bills, but also getting a bit of like unfair treatment from these critics. So with that, let's get into it. Let's dive into chapter one of The Courts of Chaos. Chapter one opens, quote, Amber, high and bright atop Colvier in the middle of the day. A black road, low and sinister, through Garneth from chaos to the south. Me, cursing, pacing, and occasionally reading in the library of the palace in Amber. The door to the library, closed and barred. The mad prince of Amber seated himself at the desk, returned his attention to the open volume. There was a knock at the door. Go away, I said. End quote. And that's a great opening. It's Corwin by himself, locked in the library. He's obviously agitated. And we'll learn quite quickly he's agitated because of Oberon. And who can hardly blame him, right? Oberon has been duping Corwin for months now, pretending to be his buddy Ganelon. He already had issues with his father before this, but now can you only imagine? I mean, what kind of a dad does that? And we'll find out Oberon, you know, claims to have done it for good reasons. He's wanting to make sure Corwin's the right guy to take over the throne. He wanted to travel with him, get to know him, all of that. But at this point in the story, you know, it's sort of like Corwin's got to go through the stages of shock, realization, anger, resentment, and then perhaps he'll ultimately come around to understanding why Oberon did this. The Mad Prince of Amber, by the way, that's an obvious allusion to Hamlet. Selazny's referencing Hamlet really throughout all five books, and this is just yet another one. You know, the fact that he's reading a book in the library and in Hamlet, the title character there is first accused of being mad because he's walking around the castle just reading a book out loud, and that's when people start to first suspect that he's going mad. So the Mad Prince, the reading of a book, those things are associated, and that's just a nice touch by Zelazny. The knock at the door is random. Random comes in, and there's a bit of a scene back and forth between the two of them complaining about Oberon, but Random is actually pretty impressed. He says, quote, You have to admit he suckered Brand, which is not an easy thing to do. He pulled a stunt I still don't understand, getting you to bring that arm back from Tirnanagath, somehow getting me to pass it along to Benedict, seeing to it that Benedict was in the right place at the proper moment, so everything worked and he got the jewel back. He's also still better than we are at shadow play. He managed it right on Colvier when he took us to the primal pattern. I can't do that. Neither can you. And he was able to whip Gerard. I do not believe he's slowing down. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And whether we like it or not, I think he's the only one who can deal with the present situation. End quote. And that's kind of brutal coming from Random. We know Random doesn't have a lot of love for Oberon. And, you know, Corwin has spent a couple of books now trying to be the fix-it guy. 
I'm going to solve this. I'm going to solve Amber's problems, right? He goes from the end of Guns of Avalon saying, I'm going to be a hero. He swoops in, saves the day. Eric dies, right? Then he's on top and doesn't want to crown himself until he's solved the bigger problem. And ultimately, that leads him to wanting to repair the broken pattern himself. And he's pretty close, right? He's very close to that. He does a little bit of it with Grace Wandier cutting through the dark part. He's attuned to the jewel. He knows how to do it. He just needs the jewel, and he needs a chance to go to the broken pattern and repair it. And he's so, so close, but he just can't beat Brand, right? And Oberon ultimately is the one that puts that point on the scoreboard that takes it to Corwin 2, Brand 1, and Corwin's pissed off about it. I wanted to do that. I wanted to be the hero. Now Dad had to come in and save the day, and it's, you know... Rightly, he's not feeling too great about it. There's also kind of the complaining about the different orders. Benedict's getting some orders from Oberon. Corwin's getting different orders. Random's getting information from Oberon. And Corwin says, quote, that's another thing, these separate orders, this secrecy. He's not trusting any of us more than he has to, end quote. And then Random laughs, and then Corwin finally kind of joins him and chuckles and says, quote, all right, maybe I wouldn't either, but three days to launch a war? He'd better know something we don't, end quote. And of course, Oberon knows something they don't. Oberon knows a lot of things they don't. And, you know, Random successfully sort of softens Corwin up in this scene, gets him to calm down, gets him to realize, you know, dad's back, dad's in charge. It's going to be fine. It's actually a good thing. What happens next is kind of crazy. Random mentions that Oberon when he last saw him, it made sort of a comment like, hey, keep an eye on Martin. And he, and he was laughing when he said it. And they can't quite figure that out. But suddenly they hear some noise. They leave the library. They're going down this kind of main staircase from what is presumably the second floor down to the ground floor. They come out at kind of the opening to the throne room. And they look in the throne room and there's something going on in there. And Gerard is right there. And they're trying to get through, but there's like an invisible wall separating them from the action inside the throne room. And they're pushing on it. You know, Gerard's the strongest of all of them. He's pushing. He can't get through. And this is some kind of crazy magic. We never see this kind of thing in the Corwin Chronicles. Just right there in Amber, an invisible wall that nobody can push through. And the scene that plays out in the throne room is pretty fascinating. This is, quote, the other end of my dream in Tirna Nagath, end quote. It's basically the mirror image of the scene that we saw in Sign of the Unicorn when Corwin lops off the mechanical arm of Benedict and brings it back to Amber with him. Here, they're in Amber, and it's as if Benedict is fighting the Tirna Nagath ghost of Corwin, and sure enough, gets his mechanical arm lopped off. And poor Benedict, he's back to having a stump for an arm. But this time, the Dara from the dream is really there, sitting on the throne. This time, Martin is part of it. He wasn't there in the other half of the dream in Tirnanaga, so that's different. Once the mechanical arm is gone and has disappeared from this world back into its Tirnanagath dream world, the invisible wall is lifted, and they can all go into the throne room and be like, what the hell happened? And, you know, Benedict is, like, wrapping his bloody stump Random super pissed off. He's playing the dad already and kind of grabs Martin. What the hell's going on? 
Martin says, quote, Dara told me she wanted to see Amber. Since I live here now, I agreed to bring her through and show her around, end quote. And that's kind of crazy, right? Like, we know that Martin likes Dara, that they, like, ran into each other months back, and she was nice to him and all of that. But we also know that Dara is the declared enemy of Amber. This is the Trojan horse that they were worried about. And he just casually agrees to bring the declared enemy of Amber right into the throne room when he's, like, a newbie here. So Random's a little irritated. And it does make you think, by the way, like, how did that action of bringing her through the Trump, like, how did that trigger this other half of Corwin's dream? How does the invisible wall appear? Like, what is that crazy magic that that triggers all of that? Like, this is the price, right, they had to pay to get the jewel back from Brand. Oberon concocted this crazy magic, but I just can't even piece together, and it's just completely, like, casually mentioned that this is like what had to happen in order for Benedict to get the arm and then he's got to return it. It's basically like Oberon makes some weird agreement with the powers of the universe to borrow something from Tirnanagath and then have to give it back. But how Dara trumping into Amber triggers the whole sequence is just not at all talked about. It's it's basically placed all on Martin, right? He you know Dara calls him, says, I want to come through Then Martin says, quote, I thought to tell Benedict since he was interested in her. Then Benedict wanted to come and see, end quote. So basically what would have happened there is Dara calls Martin, says, hey, bring me through. Martin is like, fine, brings her through. Then Martin goes like, I'm going to call Benedict. Benedict's like, oh, I want to meet her, bring me through. And then this whole thing is triggered. And I think, again, it's not really talked about, and this is speculative, but my guess is that Oberon took Martin by the arm, brought him to the throne room where the scene has to play out because, again, it's the other half of the Tirnanagath dream, parked him there, put some kind of spell on him that said, call Dara, then call Benedict, then set up the invisible wall and rode off on his horse, making a comment to Random as he went, assuming it was all going to play out the way that it did. So something like that is what happened. Then, of course, Random's like, okay, how the hell do you have a trump for Dara? And Martin shows it, and and they're like, okay, who drew this? Uh, you know, Bran's the only one I know about who can draw trumps except for Dworkin. And that's when Martin goes, oh, these were drawn by this other guy, friend of Dara's. They got a trump card for him, too. Here it is. And, you know, the older princes of Amber, the second generation, are kind of freaking out, right? So if you imagine... Random, Gerard, Corwin, like, as far as they know, Dworkin draws trumps, and that's it for 1,500 years. And, you know, they don't question that. And then all of a sudden, you know, imagine, you know, you got these youngsters, you know, Martin and Dara, like this next generation, and for them, like, oh, yeah, there's Quartz Chaos, and other people have trumps too, and it's no big deal. And it's kind of like very 60s, 70s in a way. The new generation, the older generation's stuck in the past. Anyway, so they're like, okay, and here's this other guy. And Corwin takes the trump and he looks at it. And Dara's like, really? You don't know who that is? And he's like, no, I wouldn't be asking if I didn't know who the hell is this. And she says, quote, then look at it again and go look in a mirror. He's your son as much as mine. His name is Merlin, end quote. And that's a big bomb. Corwin realizes it's that same guy that he saw in the Courts of Chaos riding the horse with the crossbow. 
he knows that time runs differently in the courts of chaos and that it could be possible. And his head is just spinning. And so now you've got Dara, the great-granddaughter of Benedict, Merlin, the son of Corwin, Martin, the son of Random, this new generation, basically. And they're sort of working with Oberon, the grandfather. And Corwin's like, what do you want, Dara? And she says, quote, I told you when I walked the pattern that Amber must be destroyed. What I want is to have my rightful part in it, end quote. And Corwin says, you'll have my old cell. And then he goes, no, the one next to it, which is funny because he doesn't want her to actually have his cell because there's drawings on the walls that would allow her to escape instantly. And then Benedict jumps in and he's like, quote, it's not as bad as it sounds. She can explain, end quote. And they agree to adjourn to one of the rooms up the hall, the throne room being off the main hall on the ground floor and there being a number of rooms possibly to the same sitting room that they all met in that night after Brand was stabbed. Corwin says, quote, Random Gerard, Martin, and I followed them out. I looked back once to the empty space where my dream had come true. Such is the stuff, end quote. And such is the stuff, that's an allusion to Act 4, Scene 1 of The Tempest by William Shakespeare, where after causing the spirits he has summoned to disappear, Prospero delivers this famous speech, which includes the line, quote, We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded by a sleep, end quote. And that's the end of chapter one. It's a short opening chapter, a little less than 2,700 words, not much longer than the opening chapter of Nine Princes in Amber, and we're off to a pretty cool start. Now, chapter two opens, quote, I rode up over the crest of Colvier and dismounted when I came to my tomb. I went inside and opened the casket. It was empty. Good. I was beginning to wonder. I had half expected to see myself laid out before me, evidence that, despite signs and intuitions, I had somehow wandered into the wrong shadow, end quote. And this is a, a fun little device on Zelazny's part. This is actually from a future scene. It's actually the beginning of chapter three, when Corwin's waiting at his tomb for the call from Oberon. Coming up in a little bit, Oberon's going to ask Corwin to go wait somewhere for him. Corwin says, how about my tomb? Oberon's like, yeah, that sounds fine. And this little snippet at the beginning of chapter two is actually the opening of chapter three. But then Corwin goes to recall the sequence of events following the end of chapter one, where they all talk it out with Dara and Martin and Benedict and so forth. So it's just kind of a fun little device. Describes going up to his tomb, looking inside, going back outside, sitting down to wait. And then he goes, quote, We had talked. Seated with her legs beneath her on the brown sofa, Dara had smiled and repeated the story of her descent from Benedict and Lintra, the hell maid, growing up in and about the courts of chaos, a grossly non-Euclidean realm where time itself presented strange distribution problems, end quote. And then they go into the scene. So it's just kind of a fun little trick that he's pulling. He says, we had talked. Dara had smiled. But then as soon as we get into the next paragraph, it's just back into straight up past tense. And in this second chapter, we get a bunch of crazy stuff, right? We, we find out that it is true that Dara is a descendant of Benedict. We learn about this guy, Duke Borel, B-O-R-E-L, could pronounce it Borel. 
that he's a high lord of chaos and that he's the one that taught Dara to fence. So he's a bit of a hero to her. And you're thinking, okay, this guy, Duke Borel, he's a bit like Corwin, a bit like the prince in Amber, but he's a counterpart, a lord of chaos. Corwin asked Dara about her shape-shifting ability. And, you know, she's like basically anybody who is from chaos has that ability. Oberon has it. He fooled you with the Ganelon bit. And and Random's like, well, how come we can't do it? And she's like, you know, maybe you can. Uh, have you ever tried, you know? And what we're learning here is a little bit that, you know, the Courts of Chaos isn't just this place where the enemy comes from. It's actually the place they all came from. And it's the origin of everything. And then Amber is an offshoot of that. And we kind of knew that already, but with Dara sort of giving us that perspective of someone who's from there, it's really kind of coming into clarity now. And what we get in this scene is essentially the motivation for the Courts of Chaos inside of this conspiracy that involved Brand, Blaze, and Fiona and their plans to topple Oberon and take the throne in Amber. So Dara kind of like puts color around the Courts of Chaos role in that. And she says, quote, Brand was given what he wanted, but he was not trusted. It was feared that once he possessed the power to shape the world as he would, he would not stop with ruling over a revised Amber. He would attempt to extend his dominion over Chaos as well. A weakened Amber was what was desired so that Chaos would be stronger than it is now. A striking of a new balance, giving us more of the Shadowlands that lie between our realms. It was realized long ago that the two kingdoms can never be merged or one destroyed without also disrupting all the processes that lie in flux between us. Total stasis or complete chaos would be the result. Yet, though it was seen what Bran had in mind, our leaders came to terms with him. It was the best opportunity to present itself in ages. It had to be seized. It was felt that Bran could be dealt with and finally replaced when the time came. End quote. So that's just a kind of mind-blown moment. And I'd love to unpack a little bit more of the timeline on that. Like, it sounds a little like what she's saying is that Bran came to them. She says, quote, he was able to contact our leaders by methods he'd learned from Dworkin, end quote. So the precipitating event here sounds like Bran reaching out to the Lords of Chaos saying, I want to do a deal. I want to destroy Amber and rewrite it in my image, and I'll accept a sort of weakened role in the balance between order and chaos as a result. And then the Courts of Chaos go, okay, let's make a deal. Here's how you damage the pattern. He obviously learns some other stuff from them to become more powerful. He finds Martin, stabs him over the pattern, damages the pattern, opens the way, and the rest is history. Sounds like they were planning a double cross on him. What I want to know is what is Dara's part in all of that? Like we'll learn in the Merlin Chronicles that Dara recruits Jazra from a nearby shadow that's close to the Courts of Chaos. She becomes a companion to Dara and then Dara basically sets her on brand. And the words that'll be used in the Merlin Chronicles are that she was to snare brand so some kind of seduction of Bran there. And it's not clear to me, is that after Bran contacted the Lords of Chaos and Dara just wants Jazra to get close to Bran so they can control him? Or does she sick Jazra on Bran 
prior to him contacting the Lords of Chaos. And that Jazra actually is the precipitating event. I think it's probably the former, and I'm getting ahead of myself by getting so deep into the Merlin Chronicles. Nonetheless, bringing us back to this scene with Dara, Corwin Random, Benedict, she comes clean that in fact, she herself kind of broke from her bosses back in chaos and thinks that they wanted to go too far, that she started traveling in shadow. She meets Martin, she meets Oberon, comes across him and claims that she's the one that helps free him from his, quote, difficulties. And that in doing all of that, she sort of got a better sense for that balance between order and chaos and thinks that the Lords of Chaos actually want to go too far as well. And so that's kind of super interesting, right? Because you have this microcosm of the redheaded cabal with Blaze, Brand, and Fiona. Brand wanting to kind of go too far with the dark forces, Fiona and Blaze not wanting to go that far and just take the throne. You know, they're okay with the capture and killing of Oberon, uh, but they're hoping we don't have to do that without striking too big of a deal with the enemies. Now, within the Courts of Chaos, there's like a bit of a faction splitting off. To what extent is Dara all that powerful? We don't know. To, to what extent is she, you know, a true, a true faction peeling off? Maybe all the Lords of Chaos are aligned like, yeah, we want Amber destroyed, like we want, and, and there's probably some hardliners, right? And she ends up traveling through Shadow, appreciating the balance, and she forms this essentially cabal, her, Martin, Oberon, and I guess Merlin, and they're representing another point along this, uh, you know, sort of power structure. And by the way, from a timeline perspective, this is pretty interesting. She's clear that she first met Martin and then subsequently met Oberon, encountered him during his, quote, difficulties, helped to free him from them. And, you know, we don't ultimately get too too much detail about the imprisonment of Oberon, but it sounds like she finds him and frees him. And this is after, she says, she had walked in shadows near to Amber and then walked in Amber herself and that she had sort of come to appreciate the balance throughout Shadow. So, you know, when does Dara start doing that, right? I mean, the whole timeline with Dara is so complicated. If it all starts with Brand reaching out to the Lords of Chaos and saying, uh, I want to do a deal, and she's around at that time, which it sure sounds like she was, and if shortly thereafter she tells her companion Jazra to go seduce Brand, how is she the descendant of the Hellmaids that Benedict is fighting in Avalon, right? So we've covered that before. So that's one problem since we know that like it's Brand and Blaze and Fiona who are the ones that sort of get Benedict tied up with the Hellmaids just before or maybe just after they imprison Oberon. And this is long after the initial deal that Brand cuts with the Courts of Chaos. After Brand damages the pattern, then Oberon is imprisoned so that's one problem. It's like, how is she even born? How does she even exist back in the day? And that's assuming, right, that, that time is flying by in the courts and that, you know, it could have been a fairly short amount of time from that first outreach from Bran to the Lords of Chaos, right, up until the precipitating events of Nine Princes and Amber. That could have been a pretty short amount of time in the Courts of Chaos. But then she needs a long time there to give birth to Merlin and raise him and have him become a young man to to come to this point in the courts of chaos. So, you know, again, time is slowing down and speeding up and it's very difficult to, to plot that. 
But what I'm kind of interested in is, is when does she decide to kind of set off into shadow? How is she able to traverse shadow ahead of her walking the pattern herself at the end of Guns of Avalon? Because, right, that's way too late. It's way too late for her to have, like, discovered shadows, met Martin, met Oberon, freed him, built a friendship with him. That all can't have happened after she walks the pattern. Oberon's already Ganelon at that point. So at some point during Corwin's imprisonment, perhaps, Dara decides to take a hike from the courts, journey through Shadow to learn more about it, bit of wanderlust perhaps, meets Martin, not quite sure how, but some connection to the fact that she knows that her bosses back in the Courts of Chaos told Brand how to destroy the pattern, that Brand decided it was going to be Martin. She needs to have picked up on that information somehow. Otherwise, it's just like a total and utter coincidence that she would bump into Martin in shadow. Finds him, befriends him, ultimately rescues Oberon. And that could be back in the Courts of Chaos, by the way. They could have imprisoned Oberon there. And she just kind of like got back home after her vacation in shadow after meeting Martin. Goes to see Oberon, breaks him out of jail, possibly. Says, you know... I want to help. I think my bosses have gone too far. I've had a good time traveling through Shadow, and I don't think we want to destroy everything. And I met this kid, Martin, along the way, by the way. And maybe, you know, Oberon, you, me, Martin, maybe we can, like, pull this thing back to the center a little bit. And then Oberon goes, cool, I like you. You'll make a great queen for my son, Corwin. I got an idea. I'm going to disguise myself as Ganelon so I can travel with Corwin. By the way, I got to get him out of jail first. He's blinded. Then I'm going to travel with him, pretend to be his friend, At the right time, I'm going to set the two of you up, need you to seduce him, sleep with him, get pregnant, then go back to the Courts of Chaos, where time will now be jamming along so that he can become an 18-year-old in just a couple weeks' time, Amber time, while I deal with this son-of-a-bitch brand, get my jewel back. And then, you know, I'll see you back in the throne room in Amber so we can deal with the Benedict Arm thing. That's pretty much how it had to have gone. Anyway, back to the Courts of Chaos, Chapter 2. After telling them all of this, Dara shows them that she's got the ring of Oberon, his signet ring, as guarantee that they should trust her, as guarantee that the orders she is about to give should be followed because they're really orders coming from him. That's kind of crazy. Corwin's like, no, not going to do it. I need confirmation from the man himself. Benedict is also like, I'm not going to execute an attack order without hearing directly from Oberon. So Dara's like, fine. Corwin comes up with the idea that they should contact Fiona because they know Fiona is there with Oberon and Dworkin at the primal pattern. So they call Fiona. Fiona drops the bomb on Corwin that the process of repairing the pattern that Oberon is about to undertake is going to kill him. Corwin says, quote, I find it hard to believe. Fiona says that a king would give up his life for the realm. And Corwin says that dad would. And she says, then either he's changed or you never really knew him, but I do believe he's going to try it, end quote. Then Fiona goes to confirm the order. While she's checking with Oberon, Corwin suddenly has a thought. And that thought is, he should be the one to repair the pattern and sacrifice his life for Amber so that Amber can have its king, Oberon. And he doesn't say it in this moment, but that's exactly the thought he's having. He tries to push it away, but it keeps coming back. He realizes that's the plan. And in that moment, Corwin knows he doesn't want to be king. And 
if Oberon does this, saves Amber, saves the universe, dies in the process, then Amber will still be without a king. He doesn't want it anymore. And so Corrin's making the calculation that it's better for him to sacrifice his life. And when Fiona comes back and says the order has been confirmed, Corrin's like, look, I need to come through. Bring me through right now. And he pushes her and she's like, uh, okay, and brings him through. And there he is in Dworkin's chambers. And Oberon's super pissed off. What are you doing? I've confirmed the order. He says, quote, you are here without leave, end quote. So we've moved into this kind of military operation where Oberon's just totally taken over, wants Benedict to attack and then fall back, has orders for Gerard, for Random, for Corwin. He's got it all worked out. He just needs his sons to do what he's asking them to do. Follow orders, please. Corwin's like, no, I'm not here about that. And he makes this kind of speech and he's circling around and he's doing a little bit like what Bran did in Tirna Nagath with Benedict. He's kind of softening up Oberon with a bunch of stuff that's irrelevant to what he's about to do. Talks about how they had become friends when he was Ganelon. And he says, quote, I'm going to believe in you that way rather than this way, because there's something I would have never done for you otherwise, end quote. And then he says this, and he grabs the jewel in a sweeping motion, he says, and, and snaps the chain over Oberon's head and runs out of the room. And he's running down the corridor that he traveled once before with Dworkin. He knows it leads outside to the primal pattern. He's got the jewel in hand, and his plan is to repair the pattern. And he runs and he runs, and he gets to the beginning of the pattern, and he's about ready to do it. He's going to sacrifice his life for the good of the realm. He's outfoxed his dad, but his feet don't move, and it's because they've caught up to him and done the trick that Bran did on Benedict and paralyzed Corwin by channeling the jewel. Obviously, Dworkin and Oberon are fully attuned to it. This is Oberon doing this. Dworkin's just kind of in the background there with Fiona. It's more than just paralysis, apparently, because Corwin passes out. And when he wakes up, he's lying there. He can see the pattern. He sees a pair of feet. It's Oberon's feet. He's holding the jewel. Oberon dismisses Dworkin and Fiona. They walk away, and it's just the two of them. Father and son. And what we get next is a really awesome scene between the two of them. Oberon says, quote, That was a damn fool thing to do, but it was well done nonetheless. Come on, let's walk, end quote. And then Oberon says, quote, You have changed, or else I never really knew you, end quote. And Corwin's like, I was going to say the same thing of you. And it's pretty awesome. And, and this is the complete and total transformation of Corwin. And it plays out in this scene right here. And the scene is really driving toward the line, I don't want to be king anymore. But before they get there, they talk a little bit about Ganelon. And, you know, there's questions, right? Questions that need to be answered about the Ganelon disguise. So we can't let that go by. Corwin asks, quote, I wonder what became of the real Ganelon. And Oberon says, long dead, Corwin. I met him after you had exiled him from Avalon, long ago. He wasn't a bad chap. Wouldn't have trusted him worth a damn, but then I never trust anyone I don't have to. Corwin says, it runs in the family. Then Oberon says, I regretted having to kill him. Not that he gave me much choice. All of this was very long ago, but I remembered him clearly, so he must have impressed me. End quote. And... That's pretty fascinating, right? So that's confirmation that Oberon had known Ganelon from way, way back. And so when he is 
freed by Dara from the Courts of Chaos and comes up with this plan to fool Corwin, disguise himself as Ganelon and travel with his son, that he's reaching way back to find a character that he had met long ago and had killed long ago. And I think I had that a little bit wrong. I might have mentioned earlier that I thought that Oberon would have interrogated Ganelon to get a lot of information out of him so that he could be in a better position to play the part and fool Corwin, right? But in fact, no, he killed him ages ago. So how does Oberon get enough good information to fool Corwin? Does he just have to remember? And again, we don't know how long ago it was. It could be that it was during Corwin's exile to Shadow Earth and not all that long ago. It could be that it's way back, and he does say, after you exiled him from Avalon. And as we've covered before... That's roughly 600 years ago, Amber time, roughly 400 AD, Earth time. That's when Corwin exiled Ganelon from Avalon. And, you know, according to this scene, it wasn't long after that Oberon met Ganelon. So he would have to have remembered their conversation from 600 years earlier well enough to play the part and fool Corwin. That's a little bit hard to believe. And then Corwin asks about Lorraine, the shadow, and Oberon says, quote, A good job, I thought. I worked the proper shadow. It grew in strength by my very presence, as any will, if one of us stays around for long, as with you in Avalon and later that other place. And I saw that I had a long while there by exercising my will upon its time stream, end quote. And so that's interesting. After his rescue by Dara, Oberon goes into shadow, kind of creates this place, Lorraine, stays for a while there, and work some magic to make time run really, really quickly here compared to Amber so that he can spend a lot of time here without losing any ground in Amber. You know, as we've discussed before, like that would have been a pretty dramatic acceleration of time differential in order for the, what was it, you know, seven or so years to go by. King Uther, he dies, the Keep of Ganelon, the Dark Circle, the Wardens of the Dark Circle, those wars, and then finally Corwin comes along. Oberon continues, quote, Yes, I strengthened Lorraine and made it especially vulnerable to the growing force of the Black Road. I saw that it would lie in your path, no matter where you went. After your escape, all roads led to Lorraine, end quote. And then what happens next is that Corwin ultimately asks his father why. Why did you do all of this? Why did you set a trap for me? Why did you test me? And Oberon, of course, comes clean and tells him, can't you guess? Like, I want you to be king. And I wanted to travel with you to get to know you and make sure. And I have decided and I am sure. And you are the one and you should be king in Amber. Then the conversation turns to Dara. Corwin says, by the way, I don't think she can be trusted. And I'm going to tell you why. And Oberon jumps in and says, I know what you're going to say but I'm the one that killed Benedict's servants. So that's an interesting bombshell. And it really shows how cold and calculating Oberon is. He did it so that she would get to him just at the right time so that they could conceive Merlin. Oberon says, quote, she will make you a good queen, son, end quote. He says he trusts the blood of chaos and that it's, quote, time for a fresh infusion, end quote. And I like that and sort of implies that Oberon realizes that the wives that he's been marrying, the mothers to all of his children, haven't been from the Courts of Chaos. And with the next generation, he wants to go back and infuse the royal line with blood 
directly from the courts. And then finally, Corwin drops a bomb of his own. He says, quote, My own hands are not clean, and I certainly do not presume to judge you. A while back, though, when I made ready to try the pattern, I thought how my feelings had changed toward Eric, toward the throne. You do what you do, I believe, as a duty. I, too, feel a duty now toward Amber, toward the throne. But more than that, actually, much more. I realize something else, something that duty does not require of me. I do not know when or how it stopped, and I changed, but I do not want the throne, Dad. I'm sorry it messes up your plans, but I do not want to be king in amber. I am sorry. End quote. And so this is it, right? This is the true epiphany. This is the true transformation. We've talked about this all along, how Zelazny said, quote, I'm interested in characters in a state of transformation. He has to be changed by the things that take place, end quote. And Corwin's telling us just flat out, I have changed and no longer wants the throne. And so it's a really fascinating turn. Oberon just sighs and is obviously disappointed. It's the one thing that Corwin could do or say that would stop Oberon in his tracks. Otherwise, he's got it all figured out, right? In control of everything. He's got a plan. And Corwin's going to screw it all up. And all that remains for our hero at this point in terms of his objectives is to stop Brand, save Amber, And not because he wants to be king anymore, but because Amber is worth saving. So Oberon says, quote, I'm going to send you home now. Saddle your horse and take provisions. Ride to a place outside Amber, any place, fairly isolated. And Corwin says, my tomb. And Oberon chuckles at this and says, that will do. Go there and wait my pleasure. I have some thinking to do, end quote. And I like that line, I have some thinking to do, and... It really implies that Oberon is now going to come up with a different plan. He's accepting what Corwin has told him. He's accepting that his choice for a successor isn't going to work out the way he wanted. And he's got to figure out a different plan for who takes over Amber after he repairs the pattern, which is going to kill him. And this is the moment, right? And it's pretty interesting because what's going to happen next is that he'll send... Corwin back to the group, Benedict, Gerard, Random, Dara, remember? He sends him back through this sort of reverse trump, and Random's like, how do you do that? And Corwin's like, I don't know, but the story's confirmed, we should all trust Dara. Corwin doesn't come clean about the whole thing that happened, that he tried to steal the jewel and walk the pattern and repair it himself, which would have killed him, and Oberon stopped him. But he does confirm the orders, and... Benedict gets up and says, I'll go do what I've been told to do, which is to attack. And Dara says, yeah, he wants you to attack and then fall back. And then it will become apparent what's going to happen next. And Benedict, quote, gave one of his rare smiles and nodded, end quote. And that's kind of interesting that he would smile. He's just so, like, good at battle and so happy when the orders are clear and the plan for military success. He can see it in his head. So he's out. He takes a trump out, the one that Corwin gave him for the Courts of Chaos, manages to take it out with one hand, because he's got a bloody stump for the other arm now, remember? And Corwin says, okay, I've got to go. I've got my own orders. And Gerard says, quote, I will get back to the sea, end quote, until Dara steps in and goes, no, you are supposed to stay here. She says, quote, see to the safety of Amber herself. No attack will come by sea, end quote. 
And Gerard's stumped by this, and he's like, I thought Random was supposed to, like, you know, stay home and hold the fort. And and she says, no, Random is to join Julian in Arden. And it's a, it's a cool little moment, right? Because Random's surprised by that. And, you know, I won't quote it all, but Random's basically saying, oh, I'm glad Dad thought of me. I've got a part to play in this. And Gerard's like, really? Random's going to go off with Julian and fight the wars? Like, scrawny little Random? And I have to stay home and watch the palace? Like, it, it's super confusing for Gerard. And it is true. Like, it's surprising that they wouldn't want Gerard on the battlefield with Julian, with Benedict. And it's almost like a little red herring. And as the reader, Zelazny's communicating to you that there's something going on here, that that Oberon has this plan for random that is sort of surprising the group does Oberon already know that Random might end up being king? That that Random needs to be there? Like, on the one hand, no, it doesn't make any sense because Corwin literally just like one minute earlier told Oberon, I don't want to be king. And Oberon's like, I got to do some thinking. So he's not thinking about who the next king might be now that he knows it's not Corwin. On the other hand, it's just so strange the way that Oberon insists on random being there, even though the whole family is kind of confused by it. So there's something behind this, and I can't quite unpack it. There's a final little scene here where Dara and Corwin spend a moment alone together. Corwin knows, obviously, that Oberon wants her to be the queen. He now knows that they're in cahoots. Uh, Dara obviously knows that, too. It's a bit awkward because she's really used Corwin. And, you know, they're sort of trying to make it work she's like i'll walk with you to the stables he's like i don't come with me i've got to go alone she's like oh no no i can't go all the way with you i'll just walk you to the stables i've got to go talk to your sisters corwin says quote they're included huh end quote which is like a super sexist thing to say it's a battle to save the universe it's a battle for amber they're all going as a family to the courts of chaos to prosecute the battle against their enemies of course the sisters are going to be there, and it'll be kind of cool in the end of the book when we see Flora and Deirdre and Fiona, you know, as part of the battle, and, and even Luella. But, you know, there's just this kind of sexist moment here where Corwin's like, oh, why would they be involved? Anyway, he says goodbye to Dara, gets on his horse, and the chapter concludes with a classic Zelazny line, quote, premonitions played tag in the grottos of my mind none of which I would have cared to take to lunch, end quote. And that's the end of chapter two. 